This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. We'll now move into a time uh, of scripture reading. I'd like to invite uh, Mason up, and after that, uh, Pastor Andrew will come up uh, to give today's sermon. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, I hope you can hear me. Um, we're reading from 1 Samuel chapter 12, the whole chapter. I will begin with verse 1 right through to verse 25, NIV. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and gray, and my sons are here with you. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these things, I will make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and also his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your ancestors up from out of Egypt. Now then, stand here because I am going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord, their God, so he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned. We have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherahs. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies, all around you, so that you lived in safety. But when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord, and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands. And if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, 
And if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you, as it was against your ancestors. Now then, stand still, and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. It is—is is it not wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called on the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, "Pray to the Lord your God for your servants, so that we will not die, for we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king." Do not be afraid," Samuel replied. "You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols; they can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. For the sake of His great name, the Lord will not reject His people, because the Lord was pleased to make you His own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully and with all your heart. Consider what great things He has done for you. Yet, if you persist in doing evil, Both you and your king will perish. This is God's word. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you this morning, we thank you that we can come to the book of one and two Samuel. We pray that you may speak to us powerfully through your word, that we may read it faithfully and sit under it, so that we may always serve you and you alone as our God and our King, and always to turn to Jesus too. As he is the one who brings us to you, we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So over the next few、uh, months, we're going to be doing、uh, one and two Samuel, and today I thought it'd be really good if we did an overview to understand what one and two Samuel is about. So to begin with, I want to ask you this pretty straightforward question: Do you know who this person is? Okay, if you don't know who this person is, then、uh, come and speak to me for counselling. Okay. So this person is、uh, Lee Kuan Yew. And、uh, he served as Prime Minister of Singapore from 1959 to 1990. That's a really long time, right? So, for 31 years, he served as Prime Minister in Singapore. So, when he died, in the rain, under the hot sun, in the daytime, the nighttime, people lined up to pay their respects. Some lined up for 10 hours. People left handwritten notes. They left their wreaths in memory of him. And when、uh, his、uh, official state funeral happened, it was pouring rain, if you remember. But yet, tens of thousands of people still lined the streets of Singapore to pay their respects to him. Now, why did they do that? Why did they bother to turn up in all these great numbers in order to pay their respects to Lee Kuan Yew? I think fundamentally, it's because they were thankful for his leadership over Singapore all those years. For many people, they felt that he was a good leader. And they owe their success and the success of Singapore to him. So there's a saying that goes, "As the leader goes, so goes the nation." 
I think for us as Singaporeans, that's not just theory, but that's reality, right? Because we look back at Lee Kuan Yew being the Prime Minister of Singapore after the years of independence, and we recognize that he had a large part to play in what the nation actually became in the end. We could easily have been having a different leader. So perhaps instead of Lee Kuan Yew, we could have had this person. Do you all know who this person is? Okay. Some of you may not. Okay, this is Pol Pot, right? So he was the ruler or the leader of uh, Cambodia for many years. And during his reign, uh, one third of the country was killed in the killing fields. As the leader goes, so goes the nation. We could easily have turned out like Myanmar. Right, Myanmar, if you look on this map, is actually bigger than Thailand and Vietnam. During independence in 1948, it was one of the wealthiest of British colonies at the highest education standards of the British colonies in Asia. It's uh, really wealthy in terms of rubber, timber. And they're really, uh, they, there's only one type of this gem or jewels that can actually be found only in Burma right, or Myanmar. And so when Myanmar gained or Burma gained its independence, it was widely expected to be the first Asian tiger. But today, Myanmar is seen as a failed state, right? It's a failed state because at the end of the day, as the leader goes, so goes the nation. Now for us today, as we look at Myanmar and we say that yes, it's a failed state, we could look back 3,000 years ago to the tribes of Israel as they are in the promised land. And then, as now, Israel in a sense found itself in a way like a failed state before God. And a lot of this was happening because of, again, the failure of leadership. And that's where we find ourselves when we look at 1 and 2 Samuel, right? That's kind of like the context or the flow of biblical history, biblical theology, when we come to look at 1 and 2 Samuel. As the leader goes, so goes the nation. And so 1 and 2 Samuel is within that flow of history where at the end of Judges comes 1 and 2 Samuel, and 1 and 2 Samuel addresses the failure of human leadership and the failure of the nation before God. So a couple of weeks ago, I was having a nice uh, cup of coffee with uh, Reverend Dr. Ben Johnson. Okay, as you know from the church camp, he hates being called Reverend Doctor, right? But he is called a doctor for a reason, because he is a doctor of Old Testament scholarship. Now, I remember having this conversation with him, and he was kind of like, pulling his hair out and going, ah, you know, I can't stand it when people read the Old Testament like a treasure hunt. Now, obviously, he's British. Lah. He's a very reserved guy, as you can tell in the church camp, right? So he wasn't physically tearing his hair out or, you know, saying the words, ah, but that's how he felt inside. Because that's the wrong way of reading the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament is not something where we just sort of take up and we just sort of flick to a page and we, we look for some treasure which we can take home with us. What he was saying to me was, you know, when we look at the Old Testament, we need to see it within the flow of the Bible, right? The structure of the Bible. And if you see the Bible, the Bible actually is ordered, especially the Old Testament, in a particular way. So if you look at your hard copy Bibles, I realize I'm uh, old school here and very few people have hard copy Bibles. At the front there, there's actually a, a, a flow to the way the Bible is put together. See, one of the disadvantages, right, if you use your handphone as a Bible, see I've got the, my Bible reading app here, you just kind of like flick to different parts of the Bible, but you lose the sense of space, right, the sense of 
flow. You, you can't sort of see how it all fits together. It's a bit like, I, I, I have this conversation with my children, right? You know, sometimes we're driving and we're using Google Maps and I say, oh, you know what you need Google Maps for? You know, you just turn left at that building and then when you come to this petrol station, you go past the mosque and then you're there, right? But you know, when you use Google Maps, it's actually been shown uh, statistically and empirically that people lose their ability to, to find things spatially. They can't relate to how one building or one road relates to another. They just kind of follow, turn left, turn right, and then you're there, right? So in the same way, our hard copy Bible, the old school way, in a sense as well, shows us that there's this connection and a, a flow in terms of how the Bible is fit together. And so, right at the very beginning of the Bible, God gives these promises to the patriarchs, right? The forefathers of God's people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're promised that they will go to the promised land, the promised land of Canaan. God would bring them there. Okay, that's the promise that we see right in the early parts of the Bible. In the next part of the Bible, in very broad brushstrokes, we say that God's people are in captivity or slavery in Egypt. But God brings them out of slavery to the edge of the promised land, right? Okay, so the people are brought to the edge of the promised land, to Canaan. On the way of their journey, on Mount Sinai, God makes these promises, these covenant promises to the people. And the covenant promises can basically be summed up in two basic points. They are to be faithful to God alone when they enter into the promised land, right? No idolatry, no syncretistic practices, God and God alone. And they need to obey the covenant commands and the laws that God has given them, right? Very simple. Be faithful, be obedient when you go to the promised land. And so as we look through then the flow and the structure of the canon of the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, we actually see the conquest of the promised land, the people going to the promised land, right? They're conquering the promised land in Joshua. And as we go then to the book of Judges, we see then the occupation, the people moving into the land. Now, as we look at the book of Judges, which comes just before 1 and 2 Samuel, we see that, uh, remember the covenant promises, they are to be faithful when they get into the land to God alone, to obey the covenant commands and the laws. Well, in both those respects, as they occupy the land, they come into the land, they fail to be faithful, and they fail to be obedient. But what we see instead is a cycle, right? A cycle of sin. Okay, that's what the whole book of Judges is about. If you remember a couple of years we did it. Okay, it's, it's, it's not flickering. I've done that on purpose, right? Okay, so there's a cycle of sin and oppression, then repentance, then the coming of the judge, then sin, oppression, repent. But actually the cycle, as we go through the book of Judges, as they occupy the land, keeps getting worse and worse. The, the severity and the frequency of the idolatry and their disobedience gets worse and worse, right? It's like a vortex, you know, like, I realize that Singapore, we don't have bathtubs, right? But it's like your sink, right? It's like the water is going worse and worse, going further and further down, right? And that's exactly Israel's experience as they enter into the, and occupy the land. They're just going further and further down into sin. Now, as an example of this and how bad it gets, the very last chapter and the last paragraph and the last sentences of the book of Judges tell us how bad things are. So this is what it records for us at the end of the book of Judges. So this is what the Benjamites did. 
While the young women were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled there. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. Now, very brief, only two verses, but shocking, right? Shocking. At the very end of Judges, in the book of Judges, we see one tribe kidnapping the virgin daughters of another tribe, enslaving them, wrongfully using the physical force to drag them off and forcing them to marriage to steal them from their rightful husbands. But worst of all, the other tribes didn't do anything. All the other Israelite tribes just went home and then life went on as normal. Now, verse 25 is like the editorial comment at the end of Judges, right? Which kind of like summarizes what's happening during this period. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone saw as they saw, uh, everyone did as they saw fit. Sorry, everyone did as they saw fit. And that kind of like sums up where we are at, at this moment, right? At the end of Judges, there is no king over Israel, a human king. Everyone was doing whatever they wanted. There was no obedience and there was no God alone, right? They were not turning to God alone. And so, as we come now to 1 and 2 Samuel, God is the ultimate king of his people, but they need a human king in the sense to lead the people back to God. That's where we're at in terms of the flow of God's word, right? It's a conquest, the coming to the land, the cycle of sin, and 1 and 2 Samuel is about this king who will bring people back to God. And that's why if you look at 1 and 2 Samuel, actually the word king is the word that's repeated the most. 350 times the word king is repeated in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Okay, so this is the first part of the overview, right? Where it fits in terms of the flow of the whole of the Old Testament. There's no treasure hunt, right? We're not going there to find out about David and Goliath. We're trying to see how it flows within the flow of biblical history. So now we're going to look at the structure of 1 and 2 Samuel, because the structure is very important to help us understand what's happening in 1 and 2 Samuel. 1 and 2 Samuel, actually in our Bibles, is two books, but actually it's written as one book. Um, In the Jewish Bibles, it's one book. Uh, So we need to read it as one book in terms of the way that it's structured. Now this diagram is super important, and that's why I put that little tag there. You can take a photograph of it later and keep it because I think it will help us as we go through 1 and 2 Samuel. Now 1 and 2 Samuel is basically made out of stories. And that's really good for us, right? Because we're very good at reading stories, watching stories, Netflix, Apple TV, Prime, right, Disney. We're good at watching stories, right? So really, 1 and 2 Samuel is really made up of the story of five people, five characters, of which three are the main character. Samuel, Saul, and David. So the horizontal axis shows the length of the chapters of 1 and 2 Samuel, right? So 1 Samuel has 31 chapters, 2 Samuel has 24 chapters. As you can see, just from the diagrams, the bar chart, most of it is about Samuel, Saul, and King David. Now, as we go through uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, we're not like watching a Netflix show. Uh, or, you know, a Disney show where we just watch it for entertainment, right? Remember, what is it asking, right? What is, it, what, what is the problem that 1 and 2 Samuel is dealing with? 
a human king to bring people back to God, a human king to stop the cycle of sin. So how do we evaluate these five characters? How do we evaluate Eli, Samuel, Saul, David, and Absalom? Well, the way that we evaluate it is that God gives us these blueprints or these uh, templates or these guidelines, right, of how he's acting in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel and why things are happening in 1 and 2 Samuel. So populating the whole of 1 and 2 Samuel are all these speeches or sermons or prayers or prophecies or visions. And these prayers or visions or, 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 or uh, sermons by various people at various times guide us and are programmatic in telling us why certain things are happening, right? Why is it this person is going down? Why this person is going up? Uh, you can take a photograph of this because this is like the whole thing which uh, explains the whole of the structure. Now, of all of these visions, speeches, sermons, visions, one of the most important is the beginning, which is Hannah's prayer. Hey, Hannah's prayer. Hannah's prayer happens in the second chapter of 1 Samuel. And it tells us exactly what God is looking for in a leader and his people. So let me read to you quickly a summary of 1 Samuel chapter 2, right? The, the relevant parts. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, and in the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength, sorry, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now this is really interesting because here Hannah prays, in a sense for herself, but she prays prophetically, right? And that's how we know that this is programmatic and a template and a blueprint for what happens next. Because when Hannah prays, Israel doesn't have a king, right? They won't have a king for many decades, but yet in her prayer, she recognizes that God will give strength to his king and exalt the horn, right? The horn is like the symbol of power and glory for animal, right? He'll exalt the horn of his anointed. I'm going to rearrange this uh, uh, chapter 2 based on the color scheme, right? So you can see from the color scheme, it already immediately shows us the characteristics that God is looking for, which we will then use to evaluate the different characters in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. So let me put it this way. We already said in the beginning, when we talk about Lee Kuan Yew, as the leader goes, so goes the nation. So I'm going to ask you this question. What made Lee Kuan Yew a good leader? Right, what qualities did he have that made him a, a good leader compared to, say, Paul Pot or other leaders around us? What made him a good leader? Well, according to this uh, thing I picked up online, there are a few things that made him a good leader, right? He was uh, incorruptible, visionary, pragmatist, very disciplined, very resilient, walks the talk, 
Well, Hannah's prayer in many ways is like the blueprint of what God is looking for in his leader, in his people. So we were to summarize all these things. This is my own summary. You may come up with a different one. God says that his leader must be not proud, right? He must be faithful. He must be holy and not wicked. He must rely on God and not oppose to God's plans. Now, just giving this general summary of what's happening in terms of understanding how God is going to then look for his leader helps us to then understand how we are to evaluate the different characters which come out in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. So the first character we see is this priest Eli. So what do we learn about Eli? Well, in a very broad brushstroke, we know he had sons, and his sons were fellow priests together with him. But they were bad priests. They abused the sacrificial system, they used physical force to grab what they wanted, and they had sex with the temple women. And Eli was complicit. Right? He didn't defend God's sacrificial system, but instead he turned a blind eye to their sin. So, according to the template and the blueprint of what God is looking for in a leader, he failed. Right? He failed to honor God. He failed to be holy. He failed to be faithful to God. So God brings him down. So, Eli was actually the God-dishonoring priest, right? The next character is the judge or prophet Samuel. Now, Samuel actually proved faithful uh, during his life. Because he was faithful, God used him in a mighty way to transition between the judges, the time of the judges, to the time of the monarchy, the kingship in Israel. So we have the dishonoring God Eli, who's brought low, we have the faithful Samuel. The next person is King Saul, right? So King Saul, very soon after he was appointed king, proved disloyal and disobedient to God's plan, to God's direct word, he disobeyed God. So God, through Samuel, told King Saul that the kingship would be taken away from him and given to someone else. But how did King Saul respond to that bad news? He actually became very angry and resentful and brooding. Instead of uh, obeying God through Samuel and allowing the kingship to pass to someone else that God had chosen, he decided instead to try to murder and kill the rivals to his own kingship. So I would characterize King Saul as a failure because he failed to to be the God, sorry, he failed to have the qualities that God wanted in his leader, in his king. So the way that we actually end up seeing, I think, King Saul, is like instead of following God as the father, as we read through the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, he almost becomes like the Godfather, right? So you know, like in the mafia movies, the Godfather is like always ruthlessly killing off all his rivals. Well, that's King Saul. Well, maybe if it's not Eli and it's not Saul, then maybe it's King David who's going to be the one who's the one that God is going to raise up as this king, this king who is going to bring the people back to him. And we see that initially, David is a very good king, right? God himself describes David as a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. In every way, he seems to 
fulfill all the qualities that God is looking for in Hannah's prayer for this king that he is going to exalt and to give strength to. So maybe this David is the one who is this human king to lead the people back to God, the ultimate king. So we see here God dishonoring Eli, faithful Samuel, the Godfather, King Saul, and the one of God's heart, King David. Now, the story would end really well if we ended at 2 Samuel chapter 10. So you can see there in the structure of 1 and 2 Samuel, up to 2 Samuel chapter 10, David seems like the, the, the person who's actually going to be the hero, the one who brings everybody back to God and stops the cycle of sin. But very sadly, King David, after 2 Samuel chapter 10, becomes a failure himself. He, he embarks on this sequence of terrible sins, right? Commits adultery with Bathsheba, murders Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. He has faith in his own strength by taking this military consensus against God's will. And he fails to restrain the sins of his own children and to do justice. So in the end, actually, he's no worse than Eli. And so, what begins with a very promising David actually is a great failure, right? David fails to be the one that God actually exalts. So by the end of the book of 1 Samuel, we actually see that, that Eli is God dishonoring. Saul is like this Godfather, and, and David is actually human and weak. All this, the problems come at the end of David's reign. So by the end of the narrative flow of 1 and 2 Samuel, we are no better off than we were at the beginning of the book of Judges. At the end of 1 and 2 Samuel, the people are still living and struggling with this cycle of sin. So what then do we make of 1 and 2 Samuel then? Is it worth studying, right? I mean, if I've given you the spoiler, what's the point, right? Because at the end of the 1 and 2 Samuel, we see that there's still this vacancy, right, for this human king who will bring people back to God. Now, I said at the beginning that Hannah's prayer is super-duper important because it's like the blueprint, it's like the program, it's like programmatic, and a template for how we have to understand what happens in the rest of 1 and 2 Samuel. But there's another speech as well that is super important for us to understand, right? which is God's promise to David. Now, I want us to notice here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, what God says to David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish your, his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So we see here that actually, in 2 Samuel 7, God speaks a prophetic word to David, right? That the fulfillment of the promises of 1 and 2 Samuel of Hannah's prayer will not be fulfilled in David's lifetime, but in a forever king 
whose heart will always be God's own heart. This is the one that God will give strength to and raise up his horn. Now we're really thankful because 3,000 years later as we sit here in Singapore, we can look back to Jesus, right? And we know that Jesus is the fulfillment of 1 and 2 Samuel. He is David's line who is Christ the Lord. He is the one whom God gives strength and lifts up his horn. We see this because Jesus is different from Saul, different from David, different from Eli. He is in very nature God, but yet he takes on the nature of a servant and he is obedient. He is obedient to God. He humbles himself before God, but yet he is Jesus Christ, the King. At the same time, we also see that this king stops the, the rot of sin once and for all, right? By his death on the cross, he can present us holy without blemish, free from accusation before God. So, as we finish this summary of 1 and 2 Samuel, the narrative flow of 1 and 2 Samuel does not end with the weak and human King David, right? But it actually ends by the pointing to the everlasting, forevermore, Jesus Christ. The one who is the true king, who solves the problem of the cycle of sin, and who brings people back to God. So in conclusion, you know, we live in a world now which actually is very uncomfortable with kingship or even leadership. Um, I was, uh, you know, if you, if you look at the PAP, right, I think even though it's uh, like, in terms of democratic rule, it's like one of the strongest uh, political parties in history, I think every year they only get about 60-something percent of the vote, right? So that means that like 30-something percent of people who don't want the PAP to be their leader, okay? But as we come to understand God's plan, Jesus must be our king, especially for us as Christians here, corporately as a church. It's not a choice for us to say that Jesus is not my king. Jesus must be my king, in all things. Because when God sees us, he doesn't see us in our human failings and our witnesses and sins, but instead, he sees us under the leadership of Jesus. Jesus, in a sense, covers us with his own faithfulness, his righteousness, his own atonement on the cross. Jesus is our king. You know, sometimes we fail because we think that Jesus is our friend, right? So we live in a world now where I was reading somewhere, even King Charles says that, oh, I, I, I'm not your leader, but together we can do this together, right? Uh, Jesus doesn't work that way. Lah, okay? Jesus doesn't come down as our friend and say, hey, buddy, let's do it together, right? Jesus is not our buddy. He's our king. He's our leader. He's the one that leads us and brings us to God and gives us atonement and forgiveness of sins. And so it's so important that we always follow Jesus alone. I remember talking to uh, a relative the other day and and this relative is uh, thinking of leaving their church, uh, giving up on being a Christian because she had a bad experience relationally with some Christian friends and they had some falling out. And this uh, relative of mine, uh, I said to her, I said, you know, look, why, why do you want to let these people bother you, right? She wants to block these people. I said, what do you want to let these people bother you for? Your relationship is with Jesus, your king, right? It's not your relationship with your Christian friends, Jesus is your king. So whatever happens, Jesus must always be your king. Right? Don't, let, don't be distracted by all these other things. It's always your relationship 
with Jesus your King. And I hope that when I speak to this relative of mine, I'll keep encouraging her, right? she's quite a young Christian, to keep focusing on Jesus as a King. It's not her other experiences that count. It is the reality that Jesus is the one that God has brought into this world as our Christ to lead us back to Him and to stop the cycle of sin so that we can be in relationship with Him. So let's close in prayer now as we remember Jesus, our King. So let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you for giving us your word. Help us to see that you have a plan through history. That right from the beginning of your word to today, you have a plan for a rebellious, sinful, and wicked people. Left to ourselves, we are like the Israelites 3,000 years ago, caught in a cycle, in a vortex of sin. You are our God, but we are unable to come to you. We are unable to approach you because of our sin. We thank you so much that you've shown us. We, will, we look forward to learning more from 1 and 2 Samuel. For how even with the best of intentions, your human kings like Saul and David were unable to be godly and faithful, to be humble before you in every way, to bring the people back into complete relationship with you and to stop the cycle of sin. Well, we thank you so much for they were indeed pointing forward to your son coming into this world, Christ the King, Jesus Christ the King. And we pray that in all of our life, through good times and bad times, through good to highs and lows, we will always have Jesus as our King because only He alone can bring us back to you and He alone can stop the cycle of sin. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Andrew. Um, in view of time today, uh, we will put up the questions uh, for today. So it will be good if you can take a snapshot um, of today's question as why it's critical for us to follow Jesus as our King. And then uh, during morning tea, uh, we can discuss this uh, question further. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.